Good morning, everyone. How is everyone? Good. How feels everyone? Awake and ready. What a joy to be together. So, welcome to Inner Renewal Week 2022. As you know, the theme for this week is spiritual solutions for our times. And the more we worked with this theme and thought about it and studied, the more we were really filled with hope and enthusiasm for what we can do, what Master brought, how we do have solutions for everything the world is going through. And I hope we can convey even a little bit of the enthusiasm we felt for it. So it should be a wonderful week, and I hope we all come away with a deeper sense of inspiration and purpose in our own lives. The flow of the week today, we're going to talk about the challenges and solutions for society as a whole. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about the same theme, challenges and solutions for us as individuals. Wednesday, we're going to talk about uh, the particular things that Master and Swamiji brought that are solutions for this time. Thursday, we'll have a panel discussion with four of our wonderful younger teachers. And on Friday... And they'll be talking about how they personally have come up with solutions in their own life. In case you didn't remember, those of you who are on the yeah, panel. Right? <laughs> and then on Friday, we'll talk about the particular mission and responsibility of Ananda and our work. In a sense, we could think of it this way. We're going to talk about what came from our spiritual parents, uh, being Master and Swamiji, what came to us individually, what came to our Ananda family, and how we're going to help society as a whole running our family business of spiritual enlightenment. Okay, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Great Masters, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. O oh, beloved Lord, help fill us with thy light so that we find solutions, spiritual solutions to all the darkness and all the misunderstandings. Help us evolve into truly enlightened souls united with thee. Om. Peace. Amen. We'd like to invite Satina and Prashad up as our singers this morning. And we did forget to mention that we're going to leave time at the end of each class for questions so we can have some interaction. So if things come up during our talks, make note of them. And we'll also take questions online. And uh, 
We have half of our singers, our, our quartet. The other two had an appointment they had to keep today. Let's take a moment and send Bhagavati and Ramesha our love. soul in free 
Okay, now for the backstory on that. Um, and we'll be brief. We could tell a long backstory, but we have a lot to cover. So in Italy, some 15 or 20 years ago, as you may remember, there uh, was an arrest uh, accusing Ananda of essentially being like a mafia-like organization because we ran a work-study program and didn't pay our people. So anyway, we won't go into the charges which were completely dismissed by the end of it. But the story is that just as we're having now, we were just about to have a essentially a spiritual renewal week in Assisi. We'd rented a big space in a hotel and all the teachers were lined up. Davy and I had been in India and we arrived in Assisi and during this huge snowstorm, that's when the arrest took place. And so all of our main people, uh, they timed it, I'm sure, because they thought I was Swami. Uh, and they were watching the house, so they timed it to also arrest him. And when they found out I, my passport didn't match, they were disappointed, but couldn't do anything. So. Anyway, all of our main teachers were uh, in jail for the week. And so Davy and I not only did basically all of the classes during that week, but so desperate were we that Davy and I were in the choir. <laughs> and so it was the last day of the last hour of the last class, and we were uh, singing, and we began singing Brave Were the People, and just at that moment, they announced, yeah, Nandini came running in, announced that our friends had been released, and that they were driving by on their way back to house arrest at the Assisi property. So, Brave Are the People has a very, very dear place in our heart. Just real quickly. Oh, excuse me. So we were singing Brave Were the People when Nandini came running out. And then we, she said, they're going to be driving in front of the hotel. So we all ran out and we lined the streets and we were singing Brave Were the People. And they drove by in the police cars waving. And so it has a very, yeah, a very, very deep place in her. Yeah, it really does. Okay, enough of So, yes, enough. <laughs> so the light is always fighting the darkness, always fighting Maya. And we have to call on the power of the great ones to help us in that. So traditionally, we start um, in a renewal week by calling on the power of the Pandavas who represent the chakras, our spiritual nature. And they're the warriors that are going to help us. And so, we we'll use a conch to, to uh, call him.
Thank you. It hasn't always gone so well. <laughs> okay, so spiritual solutions for our times, and this is for society today, as we talked about. Well, let's start with what are our times? You know, we get micro-focused on uh, 2022 or uh, the period of the pandemic and all of that. So we just get kind of tunnel visioned, but we need to pull back and see where we are. Well, fortunately, we have a very clear idea of where we are because of Sri Yukteswar and his explanation of the yugas. So we're just, if, if you take a clock and you start at, call it midnight, uh, 12 o'clock, well, let's call it noon. Um, you, you come down to the bottom where the hour hand is pointed at six, and that takes 12,000 years to do that. And then it starts moving up from that low point. That low point was about 500 AD. It moves up from that low point to uh, to the highest point again, which is the high point of Satya Yuga. And that cycle continues and continues and continues. <clears throat> and so, right now, where are we in that cycle? Well, as I said, we have passed the low point of, of uh, Kali Yuga, uh, the, the basic bottom uh, where the world consciousness was the most contracted and darkest and uh, least enlightenment, and we're on our way up. So we think now that we've got the iPhone and some uh, artificial intelligence and things like that, that we must be pretty far along that upward slope. Well, you know how far along we are? Four minutes. Four minutes into that movement up. Now, if we compare that to a hundred-year lifetime so that we get a sense of a scale, a single lifetime, and we are, were born at the bottom of that, the upward cycle was born at the bottom. So where are we in our lifetime? We're 12 years old. And so when we think that society is going to have the wisdom to fix itself, we're a bunch of 12-year-olds, and the leaders of the 12-year-olds, unfortunately, are all fighting with each other. They're out in the schoolyard, all jostling around. So um, society itself is not likely to just be able to cure itself. Now, those of us who are on the spiritual path and a part of Ananda and have dedicated our lives to, to these higher teachings, we're not living really in that age. We're kind of the, one might say, the elder brothers and sisters. I think that Ananda's work is living in kind of the consciousness, not the technology, not the world milieu, but the consciousness of probably high drop. Uh, high Treta Yuga, where there's a sense um, that, that in, in Satya Yuga, everyone is simply aware 
that this is all just God and God's play. In Treta Yuga, there's still a little bit of a veil and you and I are aware intellectually that this is all God's world and God's play, but we aren't there fully in consciousness where we will be when we're enlightened, nor obviously is the world. So moving from that age of dark materialism into an age of energy, because Kali Yuga is the age of matter and form, and now we've moved out of that, and even though not very far, we still have moved out of it, and we're in the age of energy. And so I've sometimes used the analogy that um, Kali Yuga is like a block of ice, and you can cut up a block of ice and separate the pieces, and they stay in place, and so form is like that. But as energy is added to the system, um, during Dwapara Yuga, it's going, all that ice is going to melt. And so um, as energy, in this case heat, is added to the system, that ice begins to melt and you can't keep it separate. That's why the world is beginning to communicate with each other, move around much more freely and um, the delusion of space is beginning to disappear, one of the hallmarks of Dwapara Yuga. So, so that's happening, but it isn't there yet. Another way to think of our times, take that ice and think of it as uh, the ice flow in the ocean. Well, the ice flow in the ocean doesn't just melt and disappear into the ocean. What it does is it melts a little bit and then it fragments and it breaks up into all of these little chunks of ice that you see if you have ever seen a National Geographic photo of the um, breakup of the ice flows. There are thousands of these little chunks. That's what's happening right now is that uh, all of these little chunks of ice are the old consciousness that is breaking up, but each of those chunks of ice, unlike ice, now we're talking about chunks of consciousness, the tribal um, kind of sense of, of us against them. And instead of just, just being one big mass of that, now there, as we can look, there are hundreds and thousands of little groupings and they think that whatever they think is right and they need to hold on to that consciousness, political or religious or, and whatever, the, whatever that group identity is, is a little chunk of icy consciousness that has not yet melted into unification. Master came in order to help unify things. That's one of his main purposes. We'll talk about that uh, as we go along. But right now, uh, we're, we're fighting with each other. But we're not only fighting because that Kali Yuga consciousness of form has not yet given away, but we're not only fighting with each other, but we have been animated by the extra energy of incoming Dwapara Yuga. 
So those 12 year olds have weapons. They've got nuclear bombs and they've got weapons of mass destruction and uh, they've got lots of dangerous toys that we're playing with. So the, the energy is moving and empowering, but we don't yet have very much uh, wisdom. And all of those conflicting goals and intentions of those groups, they're, they're fighting for supremacy with each other. And so with that, um, we're, we're dealing with a kind of a problem in society that we, we can't hope that society is going to fix itself. So here in this country, so often you hear people think, well, the wrong president is in power. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. If your party isn't in power, then the wrong president is in power. And if only we can get our guy in power, then everything will be okay. This, all the problems are going to disappear when that happens. Going back to this lifetime, four years in the cycle of 12,000 years. So you've got a 12-year-old, and we think that he is now going to fix himself because he's four years, three minutes older than he was in the last term of the president. So uh, I won't go on in this theme because I, I just wanted to um, set the stage quite clearly that we cannot expect the problems to spontaneously um, cure themselves. It's going to take really a lot of time before world consciousness uh, begins to be uplifted. And the reason you and I are quite uncomfortable during this time and feel maybe we don't fit is because we don't fit. Our consciousness is much more sensitive than the general consciousness of the age that we're in. So why did we get stuck in this age? Why did we have to be in a... I, we were with um, Devarshi one time years ago. We were, uh, went to a movie about some American Indian drama and it looked like a fun movie. Um, so we were there, but we were in the previews, and they were saying, showing a preview about some horror movie that was coming up. Uh, and Devashi, after it, leaned over and said, imagine living in an age where they produce that kind of stuff. <laughs> and we're in it. <laughs> so that sense of, Imagine the kind of age that they act like this. Well, you have to be kind of out of that to feel that the whole age is wrong instead of just they're wrong and if I got rid of them, then this age would be just perfect. Well, what are the real challenges in our times? There are many, many, but um, there are two or three that I think are really serious challenges. The first one is the extension of what I've been talking about, 
which is polarization. The fact that things are so separated and so tense and so focused on blaming others for the problems instead of looking at your own part or our own part in creating those. And the fact that the sides, whatever the sides, and they're multiple, have separated so much that there's no or very little overlapping common ground where a dialogue can take place. Right now in American politics, you're absolutely disloyal if you even have a dialogue with somebody from the other party. I mean, I'm talking about national politics now. But it's true everywhere. You know, the, the, these things are under, under threat. Well, as, as that happens, and that separation happens so much, then you begin to, with this polarization, you begin to uh, eliminate the possibility of anything that will help cure the situation unless it agrees with you. And so science becomes the enemy, authority becomes the enemy, wisdom becomes the enemy, everything becomes the enemy because that little chunk of the ice flow is trying to hold on to its own identity and um, it just continues from there. Well, along with that comes the sense that um, that things, um, things can be changed only by getting my way. Now, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs. I think I'm okay, but thank you, just in case. This is from a, quite a remarkable um, thing from Master called Nations Beware. Now, this was, I, it doesn't say whether it was a talk or a short article that he wrote, but it was from 1937. So he saw the impending problems coming with World War II, and he was trying to put out the energy to counter that. But there's more to it than that, so I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs. Why do world suffering and world misery arise? When people all over the earth are happy and prosperous, they are in tune with God. And the entire vibrations of the earth in relation with the planets are harmonious. But as soon as one nation starts fighting with another, or selfish industrial gourmands try to devour all prosperity for themselves, it brings depression. And when depression starts in one place, it begins to spread everywhere, owing to the vibrations that travel through the ether. So that's really important. So problems don't stay localized, they spread because the vibrations travel through the subtle consciousness, the ether. The last World War, meaning World War I, created wrong vibrations in Europe first, that which then spread all over the earth, 
And where there was no war, influenza appeared. The agonies of the people who died in the World War created the subtle cause of the epidemic of Spanish influenza, which immediately followed the war and killed 20 million people, while the war itself killed only about 10 million. In the present Spanish world, Spanish Civil War, which was happening, vibrations of the death struggles of thousands of men, women, and children are floating in the ether, causing floods in America, storms in England and Portugal, and earthquakes in India. And so the people of the world, instead of creating more conflicts and getting into wars, should try their utmost to use peaceful means and non-cooperation, for example, blockades to stop war. So that was 1937, we're not quite 100 years away from that, but conditions haven't changed. We're on the brink of one nation invading another and the world all upset. And so we look around, and why are you all having to wear masks? because those wrong vibrations in the world have drawn the current pandemic to us, just as the wrong vibrations before drew the Spanish last pandemic. And so we have to look at the change of vibrations, first of all, and in order to really have anything that appears to be a permanent solution. But as I say, to me, the biggest problem of all is the extreme polarization because that allows no dialogue and no finding of, of common ground to allow harmonious vibrations to begin to be, um, to begin to be projected into the etheric atmosphere of the planet. And so I, I think that until we're at least through a little bit of maturing spiritually, that we aren't going to see very happy times. Societally, but we have a, a role to play in creating islands of peace and harmony uh, that will counteract that. So, polarization, that's one problem. Now, the other one that he mentioned in there, uh, that the greedy gourmands, uh, industrial gourmands, are trying to greedily take too much of the world's resources to themselves. At the time he wrote that, it was a tiny problem compared to what it is now. The top 1% of asset holders in the world have more assets than the remaining 60%. Than 60%. 1% has more than 60% of the people in the world. Now, we can't blame the people who are doing that because they have just worked hard and really tried and been able, in fact, to succeed at the system that we have now. So it's, it's the system plus 
the consciousness of selfishness. Remember, we've so often talked, and we'll talk more in the later part of the week, but the materialistic energy, the downward flow of energy, uh, goes into more and more materialism and stronger and stronger egoic, I want mine, no matter what it means to anybody else. And so that downward flow in this early part of the upward cycle is still very strong. The lower three materialistic chakras representing possessions and pleasure and power are still being empowered much more strongly, generally speaking, we're talking world consciousness, than the upward chakras of, of one could call it love, peace, harmony, um, calmness and joy and, and uh, unity with God. So that magnetism of the, of the downward flow is still quite strong. And so our job is to counterbalance that and move that general flow upwardly uh, in an upward direction. That's why Master came. That's why Swami came. And that's why you and I find, us, find ourselves here in this world at this time. That doesn't fit us because Master and Swamiji don't care about their comfort. They don't care about whether it feels nice. They have a role to play in God's evolutionary process. And you and I, wisely or unwisely, have signed on to that family. And I think we signed on long ago. And so when Master said, I'm going down, who's going to go with me? And Swami raised his hand and says, I'm going with him. Anybody else? We all stuck our hands up and said, yes, we'll come. We'll come to help. Well, Master came with exactly the solutions for this time. The first thing that we have to have if we're going to navigate these times is we have to have faith that God knows what he's doing. You know, we get sometimes despairing that things are going terribly and why can't God just come in and wave his fairy godmother wand and change the dress of the world and everything is nice. Um, that's just not the way God's created these cycles and he's working on the spiritual evolution of, of the world but more importantly Master is working on the spiritual evolution of you and I. So we find ourselves in here, in this time, not liking it, but wanting to do something about it. And that not liking it and looking at it and saying this is wrong is a way of driving deep into our subconscious minds the concept that this is wrong, I don't want it. Let's get rid of this in the world. But what is the world? It's just an extension of our own consciousness. And so we're rejecting the darkness in the world as a means of rejecting it within ourselves. But we have to get more conscious about it because 
if we lose the fact that we're really our only job is to work on ourselves and the, the spiritual evolution of consciousness and we think that we're fighting something outward in the world, then, then we'll begin to lose the balance that we need. So how do we begin to combat the problems of our time? One thing is that one of the key tenets of our spiritual path is that spiritual solutions, spirituality, have to be brought into daily life. They can't be just in the churches and just on Sunday morning and a few nice precepts and then you go back and you, you go back into the, um, I don't know, playground of politics and, and start fighting again. Uh, you, we have to bring spiritual solutions into every aspect of life. That is one of the reasons why we Master urged Swami, or urged the world, Swami heard it, and why communities are created, why Ananda has communities, is we have to have models that show that living spiritually in a practical way actually works. It actually makes you more successful and happier and more joyful, and it creates what people are looking for. But without models, it's just words. We have to live that as a spiritual solution to our time. So bringing spirituality into daily life is one of the solutions. The next solution is that we have to counter the negative energy with the equal and opposite positive energy in order to neutralize them. And so we need to look at the problems of our times and say, what is the essence, not who is, who's acting wrong, what is the essence of the problem? What is the essence of the wrong action? What is the vibration that's getting sent out into the etheric atmosphere? And then we have to counteract that. So if one of the problems is polarization, then we have to counteract that by creating unity and dialogue and communication and understanding. Swami's definition of maturity is the ability to hear and to see the viewpoint of other people. And so we have to in all of our ways, we have to be open to hearing the life story. And then the, the solution to that, it's so simple that, that it gets rejected. Christ stated it beautifully, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's, it's just that simple. So when we find somebody suffering from something, we have to project our own consciousness as a means of spiritual maturity into that um, condition that that person is suffering from and ask ourselves, do we want to suffer from that too? And then obviously we don't. 
We want to be happy. They want to be happy. So then we need to actively help them. And when we do that, in every little way that we do that, we send out an etheric burst of consciousness that counterbalances the polarization and disregard of other people. We're going to go through, I'm quite convinced, a period of economic turbulence as a result of what has happened with the pandemic. And, but it's been building, you know. You can't blame, it would be counteracting my whole discussion here to blame the pandemic. You have to look at the consciousness that brought the pandemic. So it's not just, Master said, the consciousness of suffering and warfare, it's the consciousness of greed. And that consciousness of greed is going to result in economic difficulties. It's just as simple as that. And theres I don't think there's a way out of it um, globally, but there's a way out of it to create islands of simplicity. Master came and said, we need world brotherhood colonies. That's what he called them. So where there's one world brotherhood dedicated to simple living and high thinking. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're counteracting etherically. Now, obviously, there's a small group of us, and I'll end with this, a small group of us that are doing these things in terms of global population. But it's growing. The number of meditators when Master came to this country, probably you could count on, on the fingers of two hands. Now the last figure I saw was, in this country alone, tw more than 25 million people have a daily practice of meditation. So that's growing. Serving others, there's, as well as all of the 12-year-olds that are fighting over in that end of the playground, there are a lot of others who are gathering together and trying to help and clean things up. And so we have to continue to serve others. And you and I, we have to model that behavior for the world because that puts out that etheric vibration that people will pick up on. And finally, we have to spread light into every area that we see where there's darkness. We have to do that for others. We have to, wherever we see conflict or we have to do what we can to bring light to that situation. But we cannot bring harmony to the world if there is disharmony in ourselves. And so our first job is to work on ourselves and then work on sharing what we have done. Or as Swami put it, our job is to find God and to share that search with everyone. We'll talk more tomorrow and Davy will talk now. Oh, I'll just end. I brought this. I was going to read it and I didn't. This is the quote a day from today's calendar from the autobiography for Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. God is love. 
His plan for creation can be rooted only in love. Does not that simple thought, more than any erudite cosmological tome, offer solace to the human heart? Every saint who has penetrated to the core of reality has testified that a divine universal plan exists and that it is beautiful and full of joy. We need to spread that message. While he's, while Gopal is adjusting the mic, just want to thank the great soul who created this magnificent altar behind us for Valentine's Day. I just, I couldn't, who was it? Raise your hand. Oh, Paula, thank you. Oh, it's just magnificent. I, I just said, wow, Valentine's Day, beautiful. Okay, picking it up. Let's travel back in time. 1894. Let's travel across the globe, India. A devoted disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya comes to him. And Lahiri says, have you ever been to the Kumbha Mela, this great religious fair that happens in India, in Allahabad, every 12 years? No, sir, I haven't gone. You should go. Shri Teshwar, this is. He travels to the Kumbha Mela. Millions of people gathered there along the, where the three rivers come together. Very holy spot. But he's walking around. He's a man of great discernment. Not yet a Swami, but great wisdom. And he sees people chanting very superficially and beggars and tumult and noise and he withdraws into himself and he says surely the men and women of the west quietly pursuing ways to uplift humanity and help mankind surely they are more pleasing to god than this rabble that i see before me just then Someone approaches him, and he said, a saint wants to speak with you. Who is it? Come and see. And, of course, it's Babaji. And I, I, whoops. I'm going to read from the autobiography. By the way, in the wonderful, wonderful day in the life of Yogananda, it said, today, February 14th, 1947, it was just two months after the autobiography was published. It received an award from the Manuscriptors, which was the largest group of writers on the West Coast, as the most outstanding book of the month. So I just thought, wow, that was nice. And I don't think they were devotees either. So, Sri Teshwar says to Babaji, Babaji asks him how he likes the Kumbh meal, and he said, well, uh, <laughs> I was a little disappointed. And Babaji says, my child, even though he looked much younger than Shri Teshwar, he said, don't throw out the 
the few, the few grains of sugar because there's much sand. There are few men and women of realization here. And then Sri Teshwar goes on. Sir, I have been thinking of the scientific men of the West, greater by far in intelligence than most people congregated here, living in distant Europe and America, professing different creeds and ignorant of the real values of such melas as the present one. They are the men who could benefit greatly by meetings with Indian masters. But although high in intellectual attainments, many Westerners are wedded to rank materialism. Others, famous in science and philosophy, do not recognize the essential unity in religion. Their creeds serve as insurmountable barriers that threaten to separate them from us forever. Babaji's face beamed with approval. I saw that you were interested in the West as well as the East. I felt the pangs of your heart broad enough for all men, whether Oriental or Occidental. That is why I summoned you here. East and West must establish a golden middle path of activity and spirituality combined. India has much to learn from the West in material development. In return, India can teach the universal methods by which the West will be able to base its religious beliefs on the unshakable foundations of yogic science. You, Swamiji, have a part to play in the coming harmonious exchange between Orient and Occident. Some years hence, I shall send you a disciple whom you can train for yoga dissemination in the West. The vibrations there of many spiritually seeking souls come flood-like to me. I perceive potential saints in America and Europe waiting to be awakened. At this point in his story, Master says, Sri Yukteswar turned his gaze fully on mine. My son, he said, smiling in the moonlight. I love that phrase, smiling in the moonlight. You are the disciple that years ago Babaji promised to send to me. So, what we're seeing now, Jyotish gave this beautiful overview of the changes of the ages, but we're seeing how these great enlightened world guardians plan the evolution of our planet. And from Babaji and transmitting it to Lahiri, to Shri Teshwar, to Master, that now is the time to blend, to break down the rank materialism of the West and infuse it with higher truth, with yogic principles. And Master came, 1920, like a rocket, just to break through the sound barrier, the materialism barrier. And he came, and not only did he lecture to thousands of people in his spiritual campaigns back and forth across the planet, but he spoke also to politicians, to um, Calvin, President Calvin Coolidge, 
to protest heel of president of Mexico to try to uplift their consciousness. Calvin Coolidge was very impressed with him. Cortez Hill became his disciple. He spoke to invest, inventors and scientists, to uh, George Eastman, the man who founded, uh, he developed the Kodak box camera, which made photography available to the world. And he was the one who said to Master, I'm disgustingly wealthy and disgustingly healthy. And Master said, yes, but you are not disgustingly happy. Eastman became Master's disciple of Kriya Yoga. He, he spoke, again, materialism and divisiveness. That was what he was trying to break down. And he spoke to groups. He spoke in Catholic churches, Protestant churches, mosques, synagogues. You can, you can see where he went. He spoke to men's business clubs. That's where he said he would come home after speaking to a men's business club, and his hair would just smell like smoke from all the cigars they were smoking. But he just broke through that. He spoke to women's literary clubs. He spoke to groups of African Americans. There's that wonderful photo of him with the disciples there, the black disciples. He, he tried to reach people of all persuasions. He spoke to artists, the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, Leopold Stokowski. He was his disciple. And we know Amalita Galakorchi was his disciple. So uh, Luther Burbank, the great botanist who, uh, to whom autobiography is dedicated, he just tried to put the vibration out, as Jyotish was saying, not just this is yoga and we withdraw into a cave. This is for politicians and uh, Rajasi, multimillionaire insurance industry, he became his disciple, to people in business, in science, in arts, and, the, and of all religions, all races, trying to show that these teachings are for everybody. And so here we are at this point in time. He sent this great wave out. He planted seeds all over the world, really, to counter what Jatish was talking about in that quote, the negative thought forms of divisiveness and separation and materialism. And this, and he did this, and then those seeds are starting to sprout, but he only had a short time on Earth. He couldn't do it all in one lifetime, and so waves came after, and we are part of those waves. But in this transition from, Dwap, from Kala Yuga to Dwapara Yuga, we need to understand that, in fact, Swami talks about this, this movement from a materialistic, mechanistic, form-bound consciousness, that is Kali Yuga, to a more fluid, potentially more spiritual, but certainly more energetic approach to life. This transition does not happen, as we've been saying, automatically. People, there need to be way showers. It's just as though you plant beautiful seeds in the ground, but then you cover it with a thick tarp. 
Well, those seeds will have a hard time germinating. The seeds of Dwapara Yuga have been planted, but they are covered by the tarp of materialism and divisiveness. And it's if we want to pull that tarp off, we have to do it by changing our own consciousness, by coming together with others of like mind, and together pulling off that heavy cover that's blocking the seeds of Dwapara Yuga from germinating. Now, Swami said uh, in a wonderful essay in the book, Religion in the New Age, um, he said that there are three major trends of Dwapara Yuga in the movement, the transition from Kali Yuga to Dwapara Yuga. The first one is the movement from complexity to simplicity. Swami said it so beautifully. He said, complexity is the inheritance that Kali Yuga bequeathed us. What does he mean by complexity? It isn't, and simplicity in this context, it isn't just going back to the land and, you know, not, you know just being, having kind of a pastoral life. Simplicity in this context means getting out of our heads it means not thinking that we're going to find our solutions with the logical, rational mind by gathering more and more data, more and more statistics, more and more information. This is pulling us down. The movement to Dwapar Yuga is the movement using the energy that's available in Dwapar Yuga to get into a more intuitive flow, to be able to see the world holistically where you realize that the real answers I need aren't going to be found by reading one more article on the internet. The real answers are going to be found by an intuitive, enlightened perception. So the movement from complexity to simplicity. Another, Swami said there were three trends. The second one is to move from quantitative appreciation of the world, quantity versus quality. Kali Yuga was an age and the transition of mass movements, mass production, all these things where the individual, the value of the individual diminished and diminished, and the value of, uh, of moral virtues diminished. And so we have to begin trying to make the movement of quality, refinement. That's why. Swami emphasized so much uh, the concept of beauty in the community. It's why he built the Crystal Hermitage and the gardens, and he loved beautiful architecture and design. He wanted that refinement of consciousness, which is an aspect of a higher age. Not just, well, let's turn out a million uh, copies of <laughs> Michelangelo's David, and wow, we've got, you know, but no, one, one, experience and standing in front of Michelangelo's David, nothing can match that if you make a million little models. And so to, to see the value of things done beautifully, done well, done with love, done with consciousness, this is, and again, we have the opportunity in this community, this temple we're sitting in is a, reflection of that. Let's make the most beautiful temple we can. And the people who designed it and uh, painted it and all and conceptualized it, all of these things, let's bring 
quality. You know, when people come to Crystal Hermitage Gardens, which they will this year for the first time in two years, yay! <laughs> Just seeing that beauty changes their lives. And we need to remember that quality in everything we do. Never saying it's good enough, but do it beautifully. And then the third trend that Swami said was an aspect of the change of ages is the reawakening the value, the importance of the individual. And this is what we've been talking about in many ways, Jotishan, now I'm picking up the theme, that we are without the change of individual consciousness, Nothing is possible. We'll talk more about this tomorrow. That'll be the whole theme of tomorrow's class. But we need, just as in Masters, uh, uh, the chapter in Experiencing Cosmic Consciousness and Autobiography, when he talks about his consciousness going out and faster and faster to the farthest ends of conceptual infinity. And then he said, and then I intuitively perceived that the heart of all creation is a point of perception within the human heart. It all comes back to that, to our being able to see the value of our own search for God. However feeble we may think it is, one person trying to meditate, one person trying to understand what it means to live for God, has more value than all the people getting and spending and racing here and there, because it's all on the surface. But to go deep, you know, I've been reading uh, this magnificent little book that Durga put together called Thank You, Master. It's available from Crystal Clarity. It's a beautiful book. The stories from Hare Krishna Ghosh about his time with Master, stories from Mira Ghosh, who Master picked to marry his nephew, and then Peggy Dees, who was an American disciple. But when you read those stories, they're so simple and heartfelt. You just realize this is what life is about. That simple, heartfelt value of the soul standing and simply saying, Thank you, Master. I love you, Master. Whatever you say, Master. That's, that's the value of the individual. So now, let's look at these trends that we've just been talking about, and how do they relate to the challenges of our times? How do they provide solutions? So first, when I thought about the challenges of our time, the first one that came to me was, mental confusion. People don't know what to believe. You know, it's like you, everything you read on an article, you can read the opposite thing. And, and people don't know how to make up their minds. But again, returning to simplicity, our truth won't be found outside of ourself. We have to go inside and simply feel an intuitive flow and say, I know this is true. I know it, it, it rings true to me. Just to, that beautiful story, um, I'll try to condense it, of St. Anthony of the Desert. He was one of the great, great early Christians. And 
uh, he withdrew into the deserts of Egypt just to be alone in a cave and commune with Christ, who was his Ishtadevata, uh, his guru, his channel for divine blessings. And at this time, there was the complexity was our, the intellectuals. Well, who was Christ really? Was he a son of man? Was he a son of God? Was he just a great teacher? Was he, you know, and these debates, who was Christ? Who was Christ? And finally, the people were so confused. The complexity destroyed the inspiration. And one, one little monk found Anthony in a remote corner of the desert, and they said, you must solve this, come back. And so Anthony and his, with his, matted locks and his ragged robes and skin you know, burnt by the sun. He walks into this church in Alexandria, Egypt, where all the church officials are arguing this point and that point, and he just stood there. But such was his spiritual power that one by one, all of these intellectual theologians stopped talking and their eyes just turned to him. And he stood there and he said four words, I have seen him. And he walked out. And that was the end of the debate because he intuitively had experience within himself, got out transcendent that mental confusion. And that's what each of us have to do for ourselves. Nobody can tell you what's true. You have to discover it for yourself. And then when you do, you're free because you know what you know. And even if no one else believes in it, you know what you know. And then another problem of our time is moral confusion and diminution of values. That's what, we, what Swami was talking about, quantity rather, rather than quantity. And people don't know. You see people with power and misusing it and corruption and, you know, I don't have to tell you what's wrong with the world. You can find out for yourself if you're interested. Um, but then I thought, well, what's the solution to that? Master came, and we'll talk more about specifically what he came, what he brought, but he brought, again, to show the unity. He interpreted the scriptures Bible, the Gita, Rubai out of Omar Khayyam, to show, listen people, it's all the same truth. There is an eternal, moral, dharmic truth, and it exists whether you live it or not. It, nothing will change. And he came to show that there, is, there are moral values, and they're eternal. They're not made up. The very fabric of the universe is made of them. It's the DNA of creation, dharma. And Master came to show that don't, don't get lost in moral whirlpools. Truth exists. And it's there, and the great teachers of all religions and all ages have given it to us. And so mental confusion, moral confusion, and then Looking around, you see so much fear and anxiety about the future. Well, Master came and he showed us how every individual can have a personal relationship with God. 
And that God with whom we have a personal relationship loves us, protects us, guides us. We have nothing to fear. And there's a magnificent story. There's a very good documentary that Diksha told us about called Against All Odds. And it's a television documentary, many parts, about the founding of the Israeli country. And in interviewing with the people who had these experiences, miracle after miracle. And this was not biblical times. I'm talking about 1940s and 50s. And there was one story that this man told. As soon as the UN, 1947, I believe it was, declared Israel a state, all the Arab nations around were waiting. And they were supported and armed by Russia. Israel, no one supported it. American support came in later. They had no army. They had no ammunition. They would drive to the battlefront in their own cars. That's what it was like. Very, and so there, this man told the story. He and at this time, there were only six of them left, and they were defending this entry gate to the city of Jerusalem. There were three divisions of Arab soldiers, well-armed, coming up the slope to the city. And they, these the six soldiers looked at each other, and they said, do you have any bullets? I have three. OK, here, I'll share them with you. Do you have any? No, I don't have any. And they saw you know, hundreds of men coming, fully armed. And they just hugged each other, said, it was an honor to fight this war with you, expecting that would be over. And the men, all the Arab soldiers were rushing up the hill. And all of a sudden, they stopped. And they turned around and ran down the other way. The Israeli soldiers didn't know what was going on. 10 years later, the man who told the story said he was sitting in a cafe in Jerusalem. And he was telling his companion what had happened. An Arab man sitting at the next table came over. And he said, excuse me, sir, I was part of that Arab troop division that moved up the hill. Didn't you see what happened? And the man said, no. And he said, as we approached your hiding place behind the rocks, this huge angel, it was the angel, Archangel Michael, stood up with his hands like that. And we knew we couldn't advance. We withdrew. And that's what saved the men. They didn't know it. They didn't see it, but it was there. And so fear and anxiety and concern of the future, person, faith and a personal relationship with God will protect us in all situations, everything. And that's what Master came to help us to understand. And then finally, looking around, you see such discouraging statistics the, of the, I believe it was 100,000 young people died of drug overdoses in the last year. Why? Because they don't see any hope. They don't see any meaning. It just all, what difference does it make? And what we can share, the solution for meaninglessness is to find 
meaning in your life through these great teachings that we've been given. The, there is a purpose to life. It's to expand our consciousness. There is a goal in life. It's self-realization and to find God. We don't, there, hopelessness does not need to exist. There is hope, there is meaning. And our masters came to show us this. And so, Jyotish started off by saying, we came, we heard a call. Whether we knew it or not, we volunteered to be here. We, came, we chose to incarnate at this time in early Dwapara Yuga to be in Master's Army, to be bridge builders from the materialism and the cynicism and greed and meaninglessness of, that we find ourselves in, to build a bridge. Master talked of a rainbow bridge to a new age. And he gave us the tools to do it. And recently, someone sent us this beautiful quote, and I'll close with this. This was from a Tibetan newsletter, and it was written by a, a high Tibetan Lama. And he said, just to show that all paths are seeing the same truth now. The world is undergoing an unprecedented period of metamorphosis. No one remains unimpacted by death, loss, and change. Yet, all spiritual teachings agree that through the dark night, a new, more meaningful life is possible for those who are well prepared. Well, my friends, we are well prepared and we can make a difference. We can be the change that will help change the world. And that's what we're gonna talk about tomorrow. So we'll take some questions now. I always like to see who's the brave person who asks the first question. Yay, Nita, he's the teacher. He knows how nice it is if people ask questions. So we go through these times and we come across, you know, ignorance, negativity, all these other things. Are, how do you engage without becoming adversarial? Repeat the question. So as we go through these times and we find ignorance and negativity and the difficulties, how do you engage with that without becoming adversarial? Well, first of all, you have to, I, I'll just give my personal opinion. You have to recognize that people have a right to be ignorant. And it's not your job to overlay that. God's letting them be ignorant. You ought to let them be ignorant. If they ask, however, then you can engage them. So first of all, let them ask. Let them, and it doesn't have to be a specific question. It has to be, I'm not comfortable. It has to be something, some opening. Because uh, even the fast food places know they can't serve your meal through a closed window. Uh, so, you have to wait until the window is a little bit open and then you can engage them. 
And then the second part, without becoming adversarial, is to be respectful, respectful of their position and to actually listen to what it is instead of um, just just blasting them with your your truth and knowledge. But honestly, remember the etheric vibrations. If you can, in any kind of situation, even that which may be adversarial, if you can vibrate love and respect, that carrier wave is more important than anything else. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a very good question. And I think it, it's, a, it's an exercise in self-discipline, truly. I, that's my personal response to it, that it, does, it will not help to engage in a negative dialogue. And so just to use the self-discipline and discrimination, just uh, I haven't used it yet because I know I would be sarcastic. Uh, but masters, you know, you may be right. You may be right. You may be right. But um, but just to just to use self-control and realize that in these times, people are not at their best, and people are saying and doing things that I think in time they'll realize they they regret. And so uh, I think we just need to give each other a lot of space right now to go through the process of what's going on. We were sharing with someone yesterday that um, Jyotish and I used to do a master's nine-day cleansing diet every year. And when you do that diet, you get very grumpy. And so we made a, a uh, we had an agreement with each other that nothing, nothing said during master's diet can be held against you. And so I think we should do that with each other. Nothing said during the pandemic can be held against you because you may regret it in the future. One, one time we were disciplining our son, who <laughs> was probably seven or eight at the time, and kind of midway through he looked up and he said, are you guys on that diet again? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Tender has one on. Okay. Let's take one online and then we'll do, we'll get to you. This question comes from Rai and it has two parts. I would love, love to hear more about the concept of rejecting the outer shadows by rejecting it within ourselves. Um, specifically, is that practice useful in transmuting energy on a greater scale than just within oneself? Would it benefit society as a whole by working on it ourselves? Well, it would certainly, uh, I think that was already online and, and clear. It would certainly benefit society by looking on ourselves. But um, very simply, that quality that you find annoying in someone else is a projection of that which you have not finished in yourself. Otherwise, you can discriminate and you can understand that this is not good. But discrimination is different from judgment. As Swami put it, once you give up smoking, um, for a while you're very annoyed and judgmental toward those who smoke. Once that tendency of wanting to smoke in yourself is completely gone, 
you don't get annoyed. You know that it's not helpful for them, but you aren't judgmental uh, toward them. So when we judge something in others, we're actually judging it in ourselves and projecting it outwardly. And so if you find yourself doing that, then it's good to try. It's hard in the moment to pull back, but when you're pulled back a little bit, then to recognize that my judgment means that I have something to work on in myself. Judgment, different from discrimination. You can see something wrong, but that's different from the emotional um, action of judgment. And I'll just add very briefly an important point. If you find something wrong, and if you see, I shouldn't say if, when we find something wrong in ourselves, don't hold it. Don't identify with it. Yeah, okay, I need to work on that, but that's not me. Swami really trained us in that way. You know, if you have a, a serious disease, don't say, I, you know, I am this. You just, I, this is passing through me. And so whatever flaws you see in yourself, if you begin by not judging yourself, that spills over and you find that you don't judge others either. So just say, this is something that needs to be worked on in me, perhaps in them, but identify more just as a child of God. Okay, Virani, your turn. When I first came here, uh, SRF was doing Ananda. I was part of SRF. And now I'm part of Ananda. And I'm wondering if there, it's a very emotional issue for me, but is there um, any positive inroads that we might not have heard about SRF and Ananda being more unified in Master? Um, Varani is, was part of SRF when she came here and asked if there are uh, some positive developments in bringing more harmony. Yes, but only a little. But um, uh, Davy and I are in contact with some of the, uh, well, Brother Chidananda and some other who's people. Who's the president. Who's the president of SRF. And so there is at least more communication and there's certainly not the kind of animosity that there was earlier on. But there again, uh, uh, Ananda, I think, is probably more eager and more flexible. I think there's still a mindset in, in among some of the SRF members that isn't ready to move very quickly yet. But yes, I am hopeful for more in the future. And and just to add, and then maybe we'll take a break before our meditation. Um, you know, they say that it was by divine decree that India, just as we started off with that quote, India developed towards spiritual values and experience, the West developed towards materialism, materialistic efficiency. And now the time has come for those two to come together. Well, let's look at it this way. Matt, we're both, we're all master's children. SRF is developing according to how master wants them to develop. Ananda is developing how master wants us to develop. And there'll come a time, how could it not be, 
that those two different expressions will come together. So there's no need to have pain in your heart about it. It's all part of a divine plan. And the more we can, in the etheric plane, just see the unity, we're all brothers and sisters and, of, and children of Master, and the time will come. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but it's inevitable that there'll be unity. Okay, so let's take just about a five-minute break, if possible, or as quick as we can be, and then we will come back and have a meditation until 1230.